Welcome to the Talking, Learning and Teaching podcast. On this episode of the show, we have one of the UK's leading experts on learning and teaching. A highly experienced teacher with an international reputation, his best-selling books, which include Teaching Today and Evidence-Based Teaching, have been translated into many languages and are valued for their down-to-earth, no-nonsense practicality. As a teacher with over 28 years experience and a former teacher trainer, he has worked as a consultant with over 500 colleges and schools, as well as several national education bodies in the UK and abroad, and speaks regularly on learning and teaching issues at conferences all over the country. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Jeff Petty to the show. Jeff, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Well, um, thank you for, for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure. It's a real pleasure, Gavin. <laughs> Having you on the show, Jeff, is a real personal thrill for me because you've been a, a great influence on my own approach to learning and teaching. So many times when I've been reading your books, I've often thought how great it would be to talk learning and teaching with you. So it's incredible for me to get that opportunity today. Great. Well, I'm delighted that you found the books helpful. That's that's wonderful. Oh, no, they've been a fantastic source of of learning and and inspiration. Yeah. So, Jeff, the first thing I want to ask you about is is students. So. How important is it for a teacher to understand their students? So understand their motives, their needs, their preferences for learning, and, and how can understanding students in that way help us as teachers? Well, I think um, it's obviously always helpful to to know uh, about your students, especially if they've got a particular career in mind or um, they, they want to um, explore a particular aspect of your subject more than another aspect and uh, and so on but um i think the major the most important things we need to know about our students is what they know already um and um and what they don't know already <laughs> and uh i was always very impressed by a system that um uh, a school actually um uh did a lot of research on although it's used in colleges and universities all over um, which is called, I call it, uh, catch them before they fall. Um, and um, it's basically a, a system of tutorial monitoring with consequences. So you don't just monitor how people are doing. You then intervene um, with an action plan and um, give the students support. Um, and um, the idea behind that was that some students will only need to go around this sort of cycle of um, a review of their progress and their attendance and their marks and so on um once with with their tutor once say every six weeks um and then that will result in an action plan which they then do work on with support if they want it if not without and then it comes around again another six weeks but what they did at um, herworth school was if a student needed um more closely more close monitoring um they would they would expect the cycle to go around in a week or even in a day and so they would see some students every single day, um, you know, to say, what have you, you know, have you carried out your, your action plan? What's what's the difficulty? What support do you need? Do you need more support? Um, and if the student wasn't really achieving the action um, plan properly, um, they would make sure that they got more and more and more learning support, either, you know, either another student to begin with. But later on, it would be professional learning support. Um, and this improve the um, number of students getting five good GCSEs in the school, 
um, from about 38 percent, which is sort of hovering on special measures, um, up to over 90 percent. And there was no change in the catchment area or any other sort of factors. And they weren't doing special GCSEs, you know, that were easy or anything like that. Uh, it was just this meticulous monitoring. It did take them 10 years, um, but it was phenomenally powerful. But that really shows what happens when you really, really know your students um, and their weaknesses and you're addressing them. Um, so that, I think, is the most powerful thing. But obviously, any knowledge about your students is helpful. But the most important um, is what they can't do and what we're going to do about it. You know, it's that sort of cycle of improvement. So I think that leads quite nicely into the next question, really. I mean, that was a fascinating insight that you provided there, very much evidence based if they got such a fantastic enhancement in their GCSE scores. But yeah. I, I want to talk to you now about differentiation. So yeah. when, I, when I'm working with my trainee teachers in higher education, it can sometimes be quite challenging for them to understand the idea of differentiation. So, I mean, for example, for many years, higher education has largely conformed to a one size fits all approach to learning and teaching, kind of the classic lecture seminar approach. I mean, how important is differentiation in the classroom and, and, and what would you say the best way to do it is? Yeah, I, I, I was rather dismayed when differentiation first came out as an idea uh, because the, the, the solution that, that was suggested was that, you know, we needed to do four different lesson plans you know uh one for the visual learners one for the verbal learners and and uh or you know one for the weak learners and one for the middle learners and one for the more able learners and we'd have different objectives we'd have different materials of different resources different activities in the classroom and it's a near impossibility to actually <laughs> do that in practice you know because you, you know you really need three different teachers or four different teachers to do it it's impossible really um so uh right from the start i like the idea of um, uh, it's got some, it, it, technically it's called differentiation by outcome. So you, you give every, all the students the same expectations, the same work, the same objectives, the same materials, the, uh, then the same tasks. Um, but, and this is the crucial bit. And by the way, this is not just me that thinks this is the best way of doing it. Uh, Professor Dylan William and Professor John Hattie and the whole lot of others have, you know, rounding on this idea now. Um, uh, so what happens is you, you build a ladder of tasks for any given topic that you're going to teach. I'm not talking about a lesson here. I'm talking about a topic. Uh, I think, you know, in many ways we ought to drop sort of lesson plans or seminar plans or whatever and, and plan how we're going to teach a topic from introduction right the way through to the final sort of completion. And then um, so for the for the topic. You start off with simple tasks, um, which would be, you know, just recalling stuff they've been told, really. You know, what is the definition of cash flow or whatever it would be, you know, just basic factual sort of recall stuff. Then there'd be simple reasoning tasks. Um, so there'd be why type questions, you know, why why is cash flow useful and when is it used or something like that. Something that's a little bit more um but it's been sort of covered in the talk and, you know, but it, we're we're beginning to make them sort of reason with the information rather than just regurgitate it. Um, and then you end up with, say, maybe a case study, you know, of where cash flow went wrong in a business, you know, um, and um, and you and you say, well, um, you know, what went wrong in this particular context with this particular business? Why did it uh, crash um, despite having so many orders on its books and diddle, 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 um, um, and the students now have got you give them open. Challenging questions, 
So they're not closed questions like what was their system of cash flow? Yeah, where they're just purely descriptive, low order, but it's a, it, instead it's a high order and it's an open task. So it could be a PhD, could be a book, <laughs> could be a, a one side of A4, could be a sentence, you know. Uh, so and, and in that way, you differentiate because some students will, you know, get up to the top of the ladder in this particular topic um, in plenty of time you know, to give this task real thought. And even if they say they've finished it, you can say, well, hang on, you know, um, you've only you've only considered this, this and that aspect of cash flow. What about so-and-so? You could, uh, you could write a bit about that too or think a bit about that too. Whereas the weaker learner will just get up to this sort of challenging open task and maybe only be able to work on it for 10 minutes, uh, five minutes or, you know, much less time than the more able. So this idea of a ladder of tasks that goes from, if you like surface to deep learning and then to transfer ideally um if you if you know about sort of john biggs's approach you know to uh, um uh, he's very keen on that approach of surface deep and transfer and so is john hattie um but you know to state it in a simpler way reproduction tasks where you just repeat stuff you've been told simple reasoning tasks which are beginning to ask deeper questions that make the student think about the content you've given them followed by really challenging opening tasks that really make them think hard um, and, you know, reason with the information you've given them in a really deep and meaningful way. And maybe transfer it as well, you know, where else could cash flow help, um, you know, rather than just in this particular context of, uh, of the case study. So I think that that form of differentiation is much more manageable because everybody's learning the same basic stuff, doing the same basic ladder of tasks. Um, uh, but it does require the thought and the, the management of, you know, topic planning to do it for it to be successful. Quite a bit of planning and thought. That's again, that segues really nicely into the next question, because I've I've read plenty of your books, as I mentioned. And, and one thing that I always remember from them is is this idea around climbing Bloom's taxonomy like a ladder. So going from the sort yep. of lower order tasks yep. to the higher order tasks from surface to deep, et cetera. I mean, in higher education, we use Bloom's taxonomy quite a lot to create learning outcomes, et cetera. And specifically, the higher order skills are the ones that we often want our students to develop because it's obviously higher education. Mm. However, lots of the students quite often struggle with mastering those higher order skills. What, in your view, is the most effective way for a student to learn those higher order skills in Bloom's taxonomy, Jeff? Well, I think I've learned an enormous amount from Ruben Feuerstein, who actually um, uh, taught uh, and, uh, people with learning difficulties, and including adults with learning difficulties. And so I have to say, when I first started reading his stuff, I thought, well, this won't be very relevant to most of my teaching because this is special education, you know. But I was stunned uh, by one strategy that he used, and I've um, uh, and I, I call it double decker lessons. Um, and basically, um, you you isolate the skills which you know your students are going to need, either because it's innate in the nature of your subject. You know, if they're teaching, if they're being taught IT, they'll they'll need perhaps to um, negotiate um, uh, a brief with a customer. You know, say. I mean, I'm not an IT teacher, so that might be silly, but, but you know, you get the drift. There are certain 
things that a certain subject specialist should be able to do. And also maybe there's special things in the assessments. You know, maybe there's always a comprehension question in the um, in the assessments, in which case they need to be good at reading a piece of text they've never seen before, comprehending it, asking questions on it. Whatever. Um, John Biggs calls this um, uh, constructive alignment. Um, and it's an immensely powerful idea. And it's sort of obvious, but we don't do it often. Because when you look at the curriculum that most people and the schemes of work uh, that most people use, it's got the content in there in terms of knowledge <laughs> and comprehension of that knowledge and so on. But it hasn't very often got the high order skills. So it hasn't got evaluative thinking or writing skills or negotiating a brief with a customer or whatever. The, you know, whatever those things don't appear. And you just sort of assume they'll pick them up, you know. Um, and of course, they don't because these are hard, hard, hard skills. So the solution is, I think, double decker lessons. And, and the way this go, works is this. You, you have a look at the skills and you identify them. That's a real job in itself. And I think many teachers will take a whole career to get that right. <laughs> it really is hard to know what the skills should be. But once you've decided what they are, then you say, OK, let's look at the scheme of work. You know what I'm going to teach when over a period of a year or a term or whatever you've got. Um, and let's see where I can make the students use these skills in order to learn the content. So let's say let's say um, uh, being able to read a, um, a journal article, close read it, get an understanding from it is a really important skill that you think that you because you, you know, you're a psychology lecturer or whatever. And you think that's really important that they should be able to do that. So you say, OK, well, we're going to teach them, um, you know, motivation theory, you know, on week 17. Why don't we give them a journal article about motivation theory? Yeah. And it could be one I write specially and make up or it could be a real, real one, um, and we'll get them to learn it from that. But we won't just give them the journal article because they'll struggle and fall over. We'll tell them how to go about reading a journal article, you know, um, and we'll give them the skills. Um, we'll break down the how you would read, close read something, underlining the key points, highlighting it maybe, you know, um, and... Um, uh, uh, summarizing it in a mind map or, uh, you know, with a set of key points or whatever at the end, you know, um, finding a sentence you don't understand, reading it again, reading it again, reading it again. If you still don't understand it, carry on, <laughs> get to the end, go back to the beginning, read it through and then see if you understand it next time. If you still don't go and ask somebody all these obvious things, which everybody who knows how to do this thinks is obvious. The students don't don't know. They just think, oh, well, I, I didn't understand that sentence. I must be stupid, you know, and that and they stop, you know, whereas you and I would say, I don't understand that sentence. I'll read it all again. I'll read it to the end and then read it, you know, and then read it three or four times. And then maybe it will make sense tomorrow. And if it doesn't, I'll ring up John, you know, and John, what do you, you know, what does this mean? Um, so we have that persistence, those series of strategies. We know what to do when we don't know what to do if you know what I mean. Um, and we need to teach, we need to structure, you know, that process, give it to the students, and then we get them um, to, to learn motivation, this content, by close reading. And then at the end, here comes the really clever bit from Feuerstein. He says, they will not, they will forget about the skill. They'll remember the content. If you just do that, what you've got to do at the very, very end is you've got to say, we just read a journal article. What did we do? 
and why do we do it that way? What do we do first? You know, um, and then, you know, maybe the first thing you tell them to do is to read the title, think what it might mean, read the abstract, maybe look at the diagrams and the gra graphs if there are any. Maybe read the first paragraph of each section and the last paragraph of each section, get a feel for what it's all about, then go back and really start reading it. Uh, and then you say to students, what, what do we do first? And they'll probably say something other than that. You know, oh, you know, we underlined. No, well, that's not the first thing we did. What was the first thing we did? Oh, yeah, we read the abstract. Why? Because that that journal article may not be useful to us. It may be, you know, uh, we may be going to reject it and read another one instead. Um, we also we need to know roughly what it's about before we start reading it. Then we started underlining. Why did we underline? What would have happened if we hadn't have underlined? You know, and you step them through this process and you say, why did we do it? What would have happened if we hadn't have done it? Um, you step through the uh, the skills sequence, you know. Not all skills can be broken down into an entirely logical sequence, but um, most certainly can be broken down to an extent. And then the students reflect on how well they've done this close reading, set themselves targets for the next time, next time they do some close reading. And then three, four, five weeks later, they're learning another piece of content by close reading. And they review the um, uh uh, the targets they set themselves. Oh, I wasn't very good at reading the abstract really closely first. Yeah, or whatever. Um, so everybody then has got their own little uh, target for close reading the second time they try it, the third time they try it. Um, and so what happens then is you're learning content in a brilliant way because they're close reading, which is a very powerful way to learn. So they're learning the content well and they're learning the skill well because the only way of learning a skill is to do it and to get feedback on it and to set yourself targets for improving it. So you've you've covered the skill and the content at the same time. So it doesn't take any longer. You know, you're still you're still teaching the content in about the same amount of time than if you taught it in a more direct way. So the double, so deck, double deck. Yeah. Sorry, Jeff. Yeah. So the double decker lesson is a is a is a top tip, I guess, then in relation to developing those skills. Yeah, I think it's a really, really powerful approach. As I say, it comes from Forstein and basically it's the idea of the bottom of the double-decker lesson is the content. The top is the skill. You're using the skill on the content. You're learning the content because they're thinking hard with it, because the skill requires them to, and they're learning the skill because they're practicing it. Um, but you're setting targets um, for the next time they use the skill, because the skill is too hard to learn in one, one shot. Um, you might, if you, if you really want to develop the skill of close reading, you might want to do it four times, five times during a year, you know, maybe 45 times. Uh, and some students will need longer than others, obviously. So you mentioned previously constructive alignment. Um, and, and from reading your works, you obviously feel that constructivism is a very persuasive theory of learning. Why is it so important that we get learners to form constructs when we teach them? Well, it's it's um, the idea of I, I, I'm, I'm beginning now to call it co-constructivism because I think people can get confused with the 1960s uh, version of constructivism, which was where you said the teachers shouldn't teach kids anything. They should all work it out for themselves, <laughs> which which surprisingly didn't work. <laughs> uh, well, there we are. Um, so what we're doing is we're getting the students to form an understanding and um, it's the teachers involved as well as the students and they're working together. So co both the teacher and the student constructivism forming a construct. Now, when somebody learns, 
they form an understanding of their own personal version <clears throat> of what they've learned and they form it by interconnecting neurons brain cells and uh you know there's no pen and paper in there there's no no tape recorder in there all of the learning is a construct so it's you know whether you like it or not if a student has, has um learned they've got a construct if they haven't learned they haven't so whatever your theory of teaching we're all eventually we all believe in the theory of constructivism that this idea that the student forms their own meaning and everybody who studies the brain or the mind you know philosophers or brain surgeons or you know neurophysiologists or educationalists or sociologists or you know, anybody who studies the brain or the mind they all agree you know they all agree that the, the each individual is forming their own understanding of what you're teaching them so we've we're really forced as teachers into accepting this <laughs> because it's just an, a neurological fact um and so the question becomes how do we ensure that um the students actually form these constructs and knowing that they made them and therefore they're going to be there's going to be errors there are going to be omissions in this construct in this version of what they've learned um you know what they this version of what you've taught them is going to be incorrect in their own, in that student said it's going to be incomplete it's not going to be linked to all the things it is linked to in your brain but you, as a teacher they won't have that depth of uh, relational thought that you will have um so we we know they're going to get it wrong and so the the, the teaching process um is get the student to form a construct unfortunately we can't see it <laughs> so we have to get them to express their understanding by answering a question or writing something or um you know doing a task of some kind and then we can use that task outcome that that writing that that problem solving or whatever they did um as a window into their their head a window into their construct to see whether um uh, the students have got it or not and and that will then provide feedback you know oh you know that's not exactly how cash flow works so you really got to consider so and so as well you know so then that and then if the student then gets that feedback somehow um they can then uh, improve their understanding improve their construct and it is inevitably a trial and error process of developing you know and i think you know i'm i'm still developing my constructs for the things i teach and have taught for for decades i'm sure you are as well you know we're learning processes lifelong um so you know it's not surprising students need to go through this um cycle of expressing their understanding getting some form of feedback and then and then improving it again i mean that was a fascinating answer and it it links quite nicely to the next question so you you mentioned this kind of co-constructivism aspect previously and and the next question relates to sort of how uh, learners can potentially teach themselves with our support so i mean how important do you think it is that learners learn how to learn in the most effective way for themselves well i think it's absolutely vital and because i know some people who have who have not picked that up you know and i think it has helped it, it sort of holds you back and i think an awful lot of people who are very successful in life whether they're academics or not uh you know are are people who 
who are analytical about what what's just happened and and they think oh you know it would have been better if i've done it like x um and this sort of reflective you know sort of improvement of their understanding is you know is really basic to uh, running a good business or um a career of any form or sort you know reflective practice practice we call it as teachers don't we for ourselves um so it's it's absolutely vital that people can teach themselves and reflect and and uh metacognition uh, you, you'll know professor john hattie who's collected together all of the meta studies all of these studies of studies on things to do with teaching and learning and uh, particularly to do with um, attainment of students to try and find the factors that have the biggest um, effect on students achievement and he and he finds um not surprisingly that metacognition thinking about thinking thinking about your own learning is immensely powerful it has a big impact if you require your students to think about their thinking think about their learning think what they need to do next check their own learning and so on it has an immensely powerful effect on their attainment so i mean it's just practical really uh that we need to teach that we need to teach our students to be reflective practitioners in their own learning processes yeah I mean, there's one very simple thing, you know, when my A-level students, I used to teach A-level physics, um, and um, they start, and I, I noticed very early on in my career, they weren't very good at um, doing little tests. Um, and I, I, I more or less told them what was in the bloody test, you know, <laughs> sort of. And then they come up and they get three out of ten. And they say, oh, I thought I knew that. Uh, and, and, uh, and, I, and I said, well, how did you revise? And they said, well, I read my notes. And of course, you know, immediately I realised there was no corrective practice of their ability to recall their notes. <laughs> so, you know, I taught them, you know, what you do is you read your notes, then you close them, then you try and write down everything you can remember, then you open your notes again and you check what whether what you've written everything down and whether what you've written down is right against your notes. And then you notice what needs to be improved then you go away and have a cup of tea and then you sit down and you do the same again um and preferably on another day actually and just that very simple you know correcting their their recall had a huge impact on their capacity to pass tests you know and of course when you say it to them they think oh yeah but but there's an awful lot of things that we don't teach our students we just sort of assume that they've got these skills or that they'll learn them for themselves. And we've often learned, you know, we're, most people who are teachers are successful academically. We've learned the skills by osmosis or picked it up by accident. Uh, that doesn't mean all our students have got those. We need to teach them directly, I think. No, I think you make a really important point there, Jeff. I think we do often assume, particularly in higher education, that the students will just sort of pick it up through some process of osmosis. Um, and, and, and I think for many of them that enter into higher education, they probably don't know the, the most effective way for them to, to learn and develop various cognitive skills, et cetera. So I think that's a really important point. And just mm -hmm. obviously touching upon that text you mentioned there by, by John Hattie, that's visible learning, isn't it? Where he, he yeah. looks at the, um, all the activities with the highest impacts and effect sizes, doesn't he, on yeah. student attainment, which is a, a really, really important text, obviously, for anybody involved in learning and teaching. So. That was a good plug there for, for that particular book. He's just about to bring out a, a new, um, he's, going, he's going to uh, call it um, uh, 
it's, it's not a, a second edition, um, it's, but it's a follow on book. And, I, it, it, and he's very kindly sent me uh, three chapters to read through to uh, suggest improvements and, uh, uh, and, and, and things he hasn't made things quite clear, hasn't made things quite clear enough. Uh, so I've been looking at that and it's brilliant. It's brilliant work. It's fantastic work because it's so, you know, it's real helicopter looking down from 30,000 feet, you know, on, on the whole, as, on every aspect of teaching and learning and picking out the things that have the really big impact on students' achievement. It's fantastically powerful work. Really, really useful. Well, that's, I mean, that's great. That's hot off the press. I mean, that's something for us all to to, to really look forward to. Um, again, from reading your books, Jeff, you've often discussed the need for feedback corrected practice when we're teaching students. So just, just how important is feedback to effective learning and, and why is it so important? Hmm. And, you know, do we need to be giving feedback to students even when we're not assessing them? Because one of the kind of issues we often have in higher education is that feedback tends to be limited to the assessment process, but not necessarily to the learning process. Hmm. Yeah, uh, that's an extraordinarily good question, uh, Kevin. And uh, uh, and I think it's really important to distinguish because, you know, Formative assessment, as they call it, you know, assessment when the students are forming their ideas and forming their learning and beginning to to, to learn a topic um, is incredibly powerful. It's one of the, you know, one of the things that um, uh, both cognitive uh, science and also John Hattie's work and um, it's, it's immensely powerful. But I think there's a tendency to think because of the word, I think, actually, people tend to think it's what a teacher writes on a student's work. Or, or says to this student directly, perhaps verbally, but it's not. Um, you know, you know, if you know uh, about how thermostats and boilers work, feedback is just information about how, you know what's the effect of the boiler. You know, is the room too hot, too cold? Uh, switch the boiler on, switch the boiler off. You know, there's a feedback loop from the thermostat to back to the boiler, and with the same, in exactly the same way, there needs to be a feedback loop to the student. Um, about whether they've succeeded or not. Now, here's a very simple thing that, you know, is really powerful. You get the students to summarise something that um, you've just taught in a mind map or a, uh, a graphic organiser, as they're called, of some sort, flow diagram, for example. Anyway, you know, so you say, OK, we talked about cash flow, the cash flow process. I want you now on a big sheet of A3 paper to draw a diagram of the cash flow process in your, you know, or whatever. So they do that. Um, and then when they nearly all finished, you say, OK, leave your diagram behind. Get up. This is in a seminar, obviously. Get up. Have a look at everybody else's. Have they thought of something you've you've forgotten about? Um, have they expressed something in a clearer way? So you're looking at other people's work in order to to steal ideas and, and improve your own. Um, so they all get up. And they have a look at every, everybody else's diagrams and they go back to their desk and they think, oh, yeah, I really like John's way of explaining that. And oh, I forgot so and so. And they produce their mind map of um, how cash flow works or their flow diagram or whatever it is of how cash flow works. Um, and then you say, OK, now here are 10 key points, um, uh, which I think should be on your diagram. Have you got them? And you just stick them on the screen and they they self-assess against those 10 key points. Oh, I haven't got number three. And then they improve their diagram. And of course, they're also improving their construct. Now, if you think about that lesson, they're getting feedback, you know, it, from themselves when they're drawing the diagram. Oh, I need to also mention so and so well as well. You know, so they're, they're feedbacking to themselves. They get up and have a look at everybody else's diagrams and they're saying, oh, yeah, I forgot about such and such. And oh, well, that's a good way of explaining it. That's feedback as well. Teacher, 
could be reading, you know, reading the Guardian, uh, you know, with his with his feet up on the, on the front on the front desk. Hopefully they're not. Um, you know, you know, it could, could be the times, but you know, anyway, um, hopefully they're not, hopefully they're wandering around looking and learning from, from the diagrams. But, you know, the student is getting feedback by looking at everybody else's work. Then you put your 10 key points up and they go through those and they think, Oh, I haven't got number three. Um, more feedback. You've hardly opened your mouth, but the feedback's gone there. You know, the, the thermostat is telling the boiler, this isn't right yet. This isn't right yet. This isn't right yet. And and the improvement in the construct, which is what we were talking about before, is taking place all through that process. And the students might even talk to each other. Why did you put that there? Shouldn't it be over here? No, no, it should be over there on your diagram. Why? You know, I mean, there's all this feedback going on during the discussions while they're looking at each other's diagrams, maybe as well. So, you know, feedback doesn't have to be you writing a note on the student's final essay on a topic or a course or, or whatever. There's a lot more to it than that. And it's far more powerful while the student's learning than after they've completed the final assessment. After that, it's too late, you know, <laughs> pretty much. Well, not completely too late. But, you know, why can't we give them that high quality feedback right from the right during the process of the learning? That's when it has the biggest impact. And it has a massive effect size then as well as uh, Hattie's you know, found if it's done well if it's informative, if it says what's good about the work, and also this is how to improve it, um, if it's informative in that way. Interestingly, grades and marks, 7 out of 10, 70%, don't work. You know, they, that as, as a form of feedback, they're really pretty inadequate uh, because it seems that the, the weaker learner just goes into despair if they get a low grade and think, oh, I'm no good at this. Um, and the more able student who gets a good grade thinks, oh, I don't need to improve. You know, I've got a B. Um, what they need instead is this is what you've got right. This is what you need to improve. Um, so if you strip the grading away and the comparisons between students away as much as possible and focus on this is what you've got right. This is what you need to work on. Massive improvements can be can be developed while the student's learning that topic. So, I mean, I really like that approach. I mean, quite often when when I'm supporting my trainee teachers, I often refer to it almost as the sort of holy trinity of feedback within a given teaching session. You know, a learner can receive feedback from the teacher. They can receive it from their peers, but they can also get self feedback, as you mentioned there, which I yeah. think is really, really important. Mm -hmm. I, I want to take us back to. Well, it takes us back a little bit, actually, to the double decker lessons idea. Mm. Um, and, it, and it's kind of a unique slant on that. So, I mean, if it's important for us, for students to, to practice skills in class, to learn them effectively, one of the kind of complaints that I often get working in higher education is that teachers often tell me that they don't have the time to both teach content as well as set activities that get students practicing skills within a given teaching session. You know, if it's in the confines of, a, of an hour's lecture, they find it quite difficult to, to do both at the same time. I mean, what would your advice be in response to that, Jeff? Well, I think the skills um, are, if anything, more important than the content because the skills are transferable, you know? I mean, if you know how to read a journal article, close read it and really understand it, you know, what, even if you're not going to become an academic and you're going to go and, you know, become a, a you know, a, um, a structural engineer or something, 
it's still incredibly powerful, you know, to be able to read something closely and really understand it and to check your understanding. You know, it's an absolutely it's a life skill we're giving there. Whereas if you're teaching them, you know, about bending moments or something <laughs> or some particular topic, they may never use that again in their entire lives. But they will reuse the, re the journal article this close reading. You know, even if it's reading, a, you know, a leaflet about some medication they're on, you know, I mean, it's so um, I, I think you, it's it's a big mistake to focus solely on the content and to ignore the skills. You know, if you're going to do anything, do it the other way around, <laughs> teach the skills and ignore the content. Well, that would be stupid. But the double decker lesson, it seems to me, is the solution because you're teaching them both at the same time. You're getting a double hit. It's a win-win situation for both content learning and skill learning, because the best way of teaching content is to think hard about it. And the skills require the student to, you know, the skill of, say, close reading would require or evaluating or problem solving would all require them to think hard about the, the content. Um, so it's a great way to learn the content. You're making them think hard about it. And it's a great way to learn the skill because you're you're learning it in real life. You're actually practicing the skill. You're really, really reading a journal article. Yeah. For a for a very good reason. I need to know this because this is what this lesson is about. It's not a exercise, you know, it's it's for real. So you're getting that lesson does two things it learns the con you know which we described earlier where the, the students are learning some some content by reading a journal article um in a in a meticulous and careful and close reading way that is just which is determined by the lecturer so the lecturer gets the students to to read in the way they think they should be able to read that that teaches both the things at the same time so it doesn't take more time you know, you're used, you're, 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 there's no extra time, hardly any extra time to teach the skill at all. The only extra time is when you say to them, you've just read, done some close reading. How did you do it? Why did you do it that way? And what would happen if you'd missed that step out? Three minutes, one minute, you know, at the end of the lesson, you're losing no time at all. Um, and you're getting brilliant content teaching. You know, it's a win-win. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it sounds like a, an effective solution, doesn't it? Because I think quite frequently what we've done in higher education is kind of teach the content. And then the expectation is that the students will pick the skills up for themselves during self-directed yeah. study. But obviously we've got no real way of knowing if they're practicing them effectively and they're not necessarily getting that feedback that we mentioned, are they, when when they're off on their own trying to kind of wrestle with with the skills that relate to that content. So I think the, the double decker lesson is a is a really good um thing to explore really yeah it is it is very difficult though because you know nobody taught me to evaluate uh and i don't suppose anybody taught you to evaluate most of us you know we've, we've sort of picked it up but the consequence of that is a lot of people can't evaluate you know i mean for example one aspect of evaluation that's been pointed out to me is that you, you can't just say well what are its strengths and what are its weaknesses because first of all you've got to say what's it what's it there for so you you need a purpose yeah. Given that purpose, what are its strengths? What are its weaknesses? And there's still another step, which is what are the alternatives? Because something could meet its purpose perfectly. Yeah. Um, and have just a few disadvantages. So lots of strengths, not many weaknesses. And you say, great, well, we'll do it. But there might be another strategy that's got even more strengths and even less weaknesses, which would do it better. So you need what is the purpose of it? What are its strengths? 
in terms of that purpose? What are its weaknesses in terms of that purpose? And what are the alternatives? And is this one the best, the best alternative? So that's really, and once, one of the brilliant questions that, that, um, Feuerstein, uh, poses to his students when he's teaching them a skill, um, is he says, well, where else could you use that process? Because a lot of, you know, if you've got students to say, evaluate care plans because you're a you know you're a social um you're teaching uh, students to become uh, uh social workers or something so you're looking at care plans for elderly people or something like that say um and and you could teach them the content by talking at them about what's in the care plans and you know lots about care plans and you could talk easily for an hour and a half on it right but better say here's a context a certain person a case study here are four different case, four different care plans for this person. Evaluate them. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a double decker lesson now because we're going to learn evaluation. We're going to learn care plans, but you've got to tell the students at the beginning, <clears throat> this is the purpose of a care plan. You know, to what extent does these, do these care plans meet, meet that, meet that uh, purpose? To what extent do they not? And what alternative care plan would be better? And then when the students have all done that, they think the lesson's about care plans. And then you say, you've just done an evaluation. Where else could, you know, and then you say, how do we do it? Why do we do it that way? What would have happened if we hadn't done it that way? And then the most brilliant question, Feuerstein question is, and where else could we use that process? Purpose, strengths, weaknesses, alternatives. Where else could we use that process? And after a bit, the students begin to think, bloody hell, I could evaluate anything with that. You know, I could evaluate my guitar. I could evaluate um, my, you know, anything. I could evaluate my girlfriend. You know, that might be a bad idea, but <laughs> you could you could evaluate anything with that. And once the students have got that, and then you can say to them, you know, maybe three lessons later, you say, okay, we're going to do some evaluation again. But this time, it's not good to learn about care plans. It's to learn about job descriptions. I say, um, but we're still. What's the purpose of a job description? What are its strengths? What are its weaknesses? What are the alternatives? So the students get the idea that this is to, this is the way to evaluate. And I still would strongly argue there are a lot of ministers and in, in governments of all forms who don't know that. Who don't know about, you know, just because something has got lots of strengths and not, and not many weaknesses, therefore we should do it, is a bad way of thinking. You've got to think what, what other things could be doing would maybe cheaper and more effective you need to need the alternatives as well so again that leads in quite nicely to the next question i mean you talked about evaluation there and obviously that is a, a higher order skill uh when it comes that to sort of cognition i mean how important is it for students to be able to evaluate their own learning and, and make corrections for themselves where necessary well i mean the, the the purpose of education is is to become unnecessary isn't it the purpose of a teacher is to become unnecessary um and um you know if a student is is able to learn from themselves by um you know uh reading journal articles and books and in a close reading sort of way and um and and, and become self self-sufficient as it were and that's wonderful i mean it couldn't be a greater gift could it really uh being able to teach yourself and become free-floating individual doing what you want to do in the best way possible and evaluating your progress as you go and thinking how to change and reflecting and thinking how to improve so it is immensely important i think that we get students to evaluate their own but they, they'll need your assistance as a teacher they won't know how to do it why why should they um and so you know 
you, you, you might need to give them skills, uh, learning to learn skills. I mean, we, we mentioned one earlier where the students sort of read and then they cover up their notes and then they try and recall it and then they check and then they do it again and keep doing it until their recall is good. Um, there's lots of other skills that you can use, you know, um, and to make sure that the students construct, uh, make sure the students are checking their own constructs and making sure, making sure that they're basically sound. Um, so learning to learn skills, I think, are, are really vital, really vital. When I was teaching A-level physics, um, we had our hours cut for how many hours we were allowed to teach them in uh, a week. Um, and um, I thought, bloody hell, there's just no way I can fit all this stuff in, you know. <laughs> um, so I thought, well, there's some stuff I'm teaching, which is really, really basic factual stuff, like what is an alpha particle? What is a beta particle? You know, I mean, it's really just, you know, they can learn from a book as well as listening to me, probably better. Um, but then there's other stuff like field theory, which they, you know, fries their brains and they just can't get it. And I wanted more time on those topics. So what I did was I I did independent learning, which is, you know, basically I set them an assignment. I said, you, this is what you need to learn. You know, what is an alpha particle? What is a beta particle? There's going to be a test on it. Yeah. I'm not going to teach it. They looked a bit puzzled. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to teach it, but you've got to learn it. And you've got to keep taking the test until you get, you know, eight out of 10, seven out of 10, sort of on this very straightforward factual test on alpha particles, beta particles. And then I, I use learning teams. I put them together in groups of about five or six. And I said, you're all responsible for each other's performance on the test at the end of this. You're all going to tell each other about, you know, um, what you've read and what you've understood and what you didn't understand. And you can help each other. You swap your telephone numbers and your email addresses and whatever. Um, set up a Facebook page and a Twitter account or whatever, you know, or WhatsApp group or whatever. Um, and um, and this is what you need to know. This is the sorts of things that are going to be in the test, you know, just factual recall of this basic stuff. That's all you need to be able to do. Off you go, you know, and there'll be there'll be a test in a month, you know. And off they went um, and they read up the chapter in the textbook and they, you know, they got together in their little huddles in groups in their learning teams and uh, they tested each other before the quiz, you know, before the test. Simple test at the end, very short, very simple, with exactly the stuff they're expecting. What is an alpha particle, you know? <laughs> um, and, um, uh, and they all did pretty well in it, you know. Um, and I, I, and it saved me two weeks, you know, of standing up spouting about alpha particles, which I could then use to teach them about field theory, which they really bloody needed the time on it, you know, because they found it really hard. Uh, so I, I, and what happened then was they were learning to learn really in a very simple stuff. Okay. It's just factual stuff, but they were realizing bloody hell, you don't need a teacher. There's these things called books, you know, and there's websites and you can read them and close read them and underline the key points and test yourself. And then you do OK in the quiz and the test. And they, and they loved it. They they really enjoyed that teaching method to the point where they preferred it to me teaching them, which may be quite cross, actually. <laughs> when I got to the end of the course, I said, well, you know, I was going to set an independent learning assignment on this topic. But actually, we're we're ahead of ourselves here. We've got a bit of time so I can teach it. And they all looked at me and their jaws dropped and they said, well, don't you think we'd learn it better if we taught it to our, if we taught ourselves? And I thought, bloody hell, that's that's quite a statement, really. And so they did, actually. They, and we had a bit more time in class for doing past paper questions. 
So <laughs> independent learning is in my teaching today. It's a wonderful teaching strategy because it it saves you time in the classroom to teach the hard stuff, and it teaches the students how to how to learn the simple stuff for themselves, and they love it. They absolutely love it. It's really fascinating that because it's quite similar to an approach I've used quite a lot, which we've we've coined uh, as the cheese sandwich. So basically the cheese in the sandwich is the hard stuff. <laughs> we have to actually support students to, to get their heads around that. But the sort of easier stuff, the, the stuff that requires sort of lower level skills like recall, they can do during self-directed study and they can teach themselves effectively. So in your example there, you know, what is an alpha particle? Yeah. Very similarly, you know, they can go off and find that for themselves. We really wanted to focus the time that we had with students on on doing the really difficult stuff that they found challenging, so that they had the support of us as teachers, but also the support of their peers as well. Because obviously, some students would pick it up better than others, and the idea was that they could potentially support and and, and teach each other. Mm. Right. Final question for you, Jeff, and this this links into sort of things like motivation, self confidence, etc. I've had many teachers in higher education that have said to me that getting their students to experience failure in some way is a good way to help them to learn. What would your view of that be? I think it's quite a dangerous strategy. I, I can I can imagine it being used well. <clears throat> For example, you know, you could teach students to solve a certain uh, problem using differentiation, say, or, you know, whatever in math, say. Uh, but you know that there are some problems that won't work that way. Um, and um, uh, th they've got to use a different strategy. They can't use differentiation, say. Yeah. <clears throat> so you give them one of these problems, which looks the same as the ones they've just been using differentiation to use. Then they try and do it and think, oh, God, this doesn't work. Um, and I think that's a great way of saying, aha, we've got another we've got another arrow in our quiver. Um, we don't have to use differentiation. There is another approach that we could use. Let me show you what it is. So I think that approach is fantastic. But the but I don't think you should have the students floundering for long. You can make the point. What I've taught you so far, it doesn't get you far. It doesn't enable you to do these sorts of sums. You can make that point in minute a minute you know uh so or two perhaps you know whatever you know you can do it quickly if you set students some work to do as a homework which you know they got you know they're going to fail on and they're going to struggle for three hours they're going to be bloody cross when they come back and find that you've asked them to do something that's impossible and you knew it was impossible um so i think you've got to be very careful with it i think it is a legitimate strategy for showing students what something can't do. And, you know, to really understand a process or a skill, you need to know what it can do and what it can't do. You need to know when differentiation will not work for you. Uh, so that's that's really important. And it's a very vivid way of teaching that. But just I think just beware of students with who lack self-competence, um, letting them fail for too long. So they begin to think, oh, God, I'm stupid. Yeah. I think it's a worrying strategy. <laughs> I think I would use it with caution myself, but uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm uh, too kind. I don't know. <laughs> Jeff, it's been an absolute education listening to you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the Talking Learning and Teaching podcast. Oh, it's an absolute absolute pleasure. And um, if people want more um, uh, more information on it, because I mean, obviously, we've only skimmed over these things. And when you start using a method, very often that somebody's just described you 
described to you in the way I've described you, the the devil's in the detail and that we didn't give the detail. So um, uh, there's a new book I've got out called um, How to Teach Even Better, um, which is Oxford University Press. It's just uh, a, a, a short um, summary of my evidence based teaching book. Um, it's a sort of, you know, sort of uh, sequel to that. Um, and um, there's evidence based teaching as well, probably in your library. And there's also uh, uh, teaching today. So these ideas like double decker lessons and independent learning and constructivism and uh, formative assessment, it's all it's all um, in much more detail in there and lots of different ways of doing it. Fantastic. Thanks for that, Jeff. It's been great talking to you. Oh, thank you for the invitation, Kevin. It's been great talking to you. It's really enjoyed it. Thank you.